The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix podcast. Tune in today. Kelda and welcome to the first episode of The Fold. I'm your host Duncan Grieve and this is my, my first uh, podcast that, that's, that's mine alone. Um, it actually, this is me having a second go at recording an intro. The first I did ahead of my first interview which is coming up shortly um, but it had a different name then, a name which I found a bit too... It could be read as pompous, and so I'm changing it to be called The Fold because I like the fact that it's uh, it's kind of a pun. Do you get it? It's about the media and how we could be about all about to fold. The fold is like a, a term that means you can be either above it or below it, and above it is uh you know on a newspaper means that you've got that that really prime position on a website it means it's the first thing you see when you click a link or go to a site so it it has a specific meaning but uh there's definitely i'm leaning into the double meaning of uh of of a business just basically disappearing because man it's been that kind of a year you know the first media story of the year i wrote was about um, vice disappearing from the local market um the the most one of the most recent was about three potentially uh being sold or 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 disappearing entirely and you know it's it's i find this industry um which which you know i've I've been a part of we, we run a business within um i find it so fascinating and i love it so much and it's kind of infuriating it does a lot of sort of not very smart things it does a lot of really really clever and well executed things it provides a huge benefit to society and occasionally causes society real trouble um but fundamentally i don't think people want to live without the media but i do genuinely think we're going through this transition where all options are on the table there's a full recovery to, to health potentially i don't know exactly how but Look, let, let's let's dream on and pretend it, we can. But there's also a situation where we we lose some real titans of our industry, and we don't know what that means for all of us. So I'm going to start a monthly podcast, um, kind of vaguely inspired by uh, the Monopod, which I did uh, after the the sale of uh, three was first announced. This sort of slightly crazed half hour, just me alone and and uh, <laughs> with. My producer Alice Wibblittle, who's who's here with me right now, um, just because I think that there is so much going on in this industry that you can report and analyze only so much within text, but a lot of it just needs to be chewed chewed through. 
So once a month, I will be uh, coming in here and grabbing someone else from the New Zealand media industry who I think has a really you know, interesting perspective on it. Um, sometimes it will be a journalist. Sometimes it will be you know, a, a producer or a CEO. I'll just go wherever I think the most interesting story is. And then periodically when things blow up, and when I say periodically, it, may, it feels like it's about once every two weeks at the moment, um, I'll come in and, you know, either just <laughs> just do a sermon myself alone or um, or, or get someone from the spinoff to, to chew it through with me. So uh, the first episode is me uh, interviewing Sinead Boucher. Uh, Sinead is the CEO of Stuff. Um, she was the first editor of the website um, stuff back in I think 2005 or thereabouts. You know, she's she's a reporter. Um, she's a, a great journalist. I think she's had a really profound impact on stuff. You might think that I've been a little soft on her, uh, you know, especially those of you who are inclined to associate stuff with some of the excesses of the kind of the what's you know what what you might call the clickbait era. Um, maybe that's true, but I genuinely really admire the way that stuff has has turned around as an organization and really it's it's emphasized some of its best reporting and its journalists and it's put them to the to the front. It's got this climate change section, which I know from experience can't be justifying its position based on clicks, and they're putting it there because they believe in it. And these are signals that maybe you know they're they're people who have formed a particular opinion of stuff might not necessarily see, but as someone who's watching them closely, um, I think they're, they're pretty impressive. And to do them at any time is impressive to do them at a time when they've been for sale, you know, uh, for, for years and particularly this year. And they've been, you know, hustling to, to start new businesses. To they, They've just... They're operating under as as difficult a set of circumstances as anyone in the New Zealand media, and yet they're producing better work than they maybe they ever have it at any point in the company's history. And I'm sort of fascinated by the process of moving a ship of that size. Stuff employs more journalists than anyone else in New Zealand. Um, it's a it's a really it's a complex organism, and I think that you know it provides this extraordinary service to New Zealand with which is to make you know it covers everywhere from from Hamilton down to Christchurch you know a huge the biggest chunk of the country I mean it covers the whole country but it particularly emphasizes that big stripe through the middle and uh, and does it very well and and then puts it all on the internet for free it's you know it may be that we look back in time and and uh Look back on this as, as this extraordinary um, period of, of plenty and and of access to, to that resource, um, or as just a giant business folly. Anyway, I'm starting to ramble. I'm really excited about this. Um, I'll now hand over to the interview which I conducted with Sinead uh, about a week ago. I don't think it's out of date as of now, but if another huge story breaks in the meantime, apologies for us missing on that. Um, we start off by talking about her career and the sort of the early years of stuff and end up discussing some of the big issues. She's got really interesting things to say about comment moderation, about Facebook. They've taken a really strong and principled stand there, which I don't think many people know. So, uh, you know, stick around. I think there's, there's a lot in this and, um, 
please subscribe keep listening because because we'll be we'll be doing more on this uh in the new year so yeah thanks welcome to the fold Kia ora, Sinead. Kia ora, Duncan. Uh, Sinead is the CEO of Stuff, um, probably the, are you the biggest news organisation in New Zealand? Uh, we describe ourselves as that, yeah. It's, it feels accurate. Um, certainly the most popular news site, just an absolute force of uh, journalism in this country and one that has under her reign kind of undergone quite a specific transformation. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about all of the mad stories <laughs> that have come out of this year from the uh, the potential sale of, of three to the RNZ, TVNZ merger to, you know, the the relationship with, with the likes of Facebook um, and Hopefully it's going to be a good time. Thanks for listening, and um, and let's just get into it. So, Sinead, I wondered if you could start by kind of telling me about your your road to this job. Um, you know, you're the CEO of this company, but you you've been with with stuff on and off for for quite some time. And yeah, just just tell tell me about how you got here. Yeah, I have to say, it was never a path that I saw developing when I started off in my career as a young reporter um, with the press in Christchurch, which is where I grew up. And, um, you know, I sort of, I loved that, I loved that job. I I spent three years in Rangiora, North Canterbury, you know, doing all the councils and very odd police stories that tended to come out from an area like that. And then eventually sort of headed overseas to the UK for... um, another OE had been before um, and I just landed in London at, I think this is sort of a really defining time in my career and the way it developed just at the time of that first dot-com bubble you know about 1999 2000 and it was a time when um, lots of new startups everyone was sort of getting into some digital business and as a result there were a lot of opportunities for journalists coming in because um, media was expanding and and journalists were being, you know, lured away from media into new startups and things. So, um, I ended up getting a job at the Financial Times, which had just um, launched into its first big, you know, commitment to digital journalism. And um, I actually got that job because Jonathan McKenzie, who's currently the editor of the Waikato Times, um, we'd been journalism school mates and then flatmates in London he had been offered a role there and then had decided to stick with the Daily Telegraph and said to me why don't you just turn up in my place and see what happens <laughs> and so I did and the guy who ran the you know the breaking news sort of digital team said oh you Kiwis you know all right come on in and and that was my first foray into sort of digital journalism and and the FT was an incredible incredible organization it still is at they had um 400 odd journalists in their, um, they had 400 odd journalists in their, uh, you know, original newsroom. So they'd more or less decided to replicate every single position into digital. So, for example, they might have had a European aviation reporter for print. So they also had a European aviation reporter for digital. So it was jobs, jobs bonanza. And my job was in the, 
you know, start off on breaking news and writing out breaking news. And at that time, breaking news constituted waiting for the hour to publish the story and things like that. It was really great. And that led on to a role uh, with Reuters. Um, and then, you know, my husband and I had our baby daughter in London decide to head back to Christchurch. And um, Paul Thompson at the press sort of asked me to look after the press website, which was just sort of sitting there. And that was, you know, great fun. That led on to become the first um, digital editor for stuff. So, I mean, that that era of gen- digital journalism now feels kind of quaint in a way that there was so much excitement about the opportunity of it and you know the the business models weren't yet established there were the cpms were were far higher and looked like you know you might be able to uh, build a business around online you know purely online advertising in a way what what are your sort of main you know if you were able to sort of go back and and sort of tell yourself what was coming what are, what are some of the assumptions that you that were made at that time that proved to be sort of catastrophically wrong ultimately from a business perspective or were you less involved in that yeah, business look, side? I think one of the ones that obviously gets thrown up all the time is the big mistake that news media made for not charging for content from the start and I don't know whether that really would have been the savior of everything or not because the internet has thrown up so many different kinds of businesses who would have not all played within the same rules as news media might have tried to do. So um, you know, at, at that time when the internet was still being established as something people used every day and we, you know, relied on, for us it was all about um, building scale of audience and trying to convince people to come and read in digital, and a lot of it was about fighting internal battles. About you know, this was something that was worth investing in and important. It would be important um, to journalism and to the businesses going on. But um, and that was a great. It had a real wild west sort of feeling about it at times. It was really good fun, um, and because we were sort of a almost like an internal startup of a way and stuff, nobody really wanted to put their you know. A lot of the senior management didn't really want to get their fingers into the digital side because they weren't sure if it was going to be a thing or not a thing, and we were just left to get on with it and go for it. And I think, um, you know, I think the things we did right were really focusing on transforming journalism from being a once a day print sort of thing into being a live medium where you could convey information as it happened and develop new forms of storytelling. And I think the things that you would know, do differently. Um, I think it's just really hard to say. I, I, Maybe it would have been completely different if we'd started doing digital as a subscription service um, from the start, or maybe it would have just opened the window to other kinds of digital news businesses to get established and um, build advertising-based models, as they have done anyway. So with stuff, you know, I, I kind of... When it first emerged, there was this, you know, there was this kind of horror at the name at its lack of specificity. Uh, you know, it was come up with by an ad agency, is that Yeah, right? I think Saatchi's were involved in that. And I think well, one of the sort of uh, anniversaries of stuff, it might have been the 10th anniversary or something, we went back and looked at the original list of names to see what we could have been called. <laughs> and I'll tell you, stuff was the best of the bunch. <laughs> and I don't know if it was one of those ones where the... The agency wanted it to be called stuff, so everything else was really bad. And the, on the list, like, 
um, deepandwide.co.nz was on the shortlist. <laughs> That's a whole different business model right there. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. Thought, I think you might have had some. <laughs> um, pavlova.co.nz, you know, 24-7. All these really, really cheesy names. Stuff was really the only answer. And I think, you know, at the beginning we got a lot of flack around it. But as we've developed into the era of Googles and Twitters, et cetera, it's just become you know, the right name. Totally. And what does the spin-off yeah. mean? You know, no, no, you know, you can spend a lot of time and energy worrying about yeah. names, but really they, you just imbue them with, with your work. Through that, not necessarily in that, that early period, but through, I guess, towards the end of that, that first decade and certainly maybe 2010 through 2015, stuff acquired a reputation for a particular kind of sort of pace and... You know, like it, it became a code word, even its comment section, Stuff Nation, the, the, fairly or not, it acquired a reputation for the kind of the ex- worst excesses of the, um, the digital kind of clickbait era. What, what was your role within the company at the time? And, and did you sort of have concerns about that and how it was sort of impacting some yeah. some other elements of I your prob- I probably had more concerns about the way stuff was developing in terms of its reputation than actually about what stuff was actually doing. Um, I always thought that sort of, um, you know, cry of clickbait and everything was unfair, even though it's true that the tone of stuff back in those days is different than where it's settled now. And I think it was part of the evolution of stuff trying to, like a lot of businesses figure out what a digital news site was in the modern era. Stuff Nation, um, I'm still really proud of Stuff Nation. That was one of, you know, that was our way of trying to open up the platform of stuff to other New Zealanders, any New Zealanders to tell their story and publish it. And some of those stories were incredibly powerful and still remain among our most read content. Um, There's one in particular that um, sticks out of a mother who wrote um, a Stuff Nation story about watching her son drown and not realising that he was drowning and um, because he was smiling and fine. And that just, you know, it was incredibly powerful because it was told in her words and it had a real impact on our audience and um, became part of a water safety series that's been used again and again. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I really... Um, you know, can can make me see a red mist now as when people talk about the clickbait on stuff. And mm. I I always ask, what stories are you meaning when you talk about that? And very rarely can someone actually give me an example. Um, because the news, you know, I watch the newsroom and I watch the journalist work every day and the producers and everything. And clickbait or the whole idea of that is not something they aspire to or, or work to at all in any way. It's quite the opposite. Um, if anything, they're all hyper aware that they don't want to be you know, pulled into that side of things. The, the comment section was another place that kind of, you know, people would, and I yeah, find quite um, sort of jarring at times mm. on, on particular issues. And that Seems like something that there's been a concerted effort to kind of restrain or, or reform. Yeah. I know that Patrick wrote quite eloquently about it um, a couple of years ago. Do, you know, how, how does do you sort of process that? On one level, you want to have interactions with your readers, but you want them to be within a particular bounds. And there are sort of there's a particular load 
that is placed on publishers that isn't present mm. for Facebook, and we'll we'll talk about them later. But do you want to talk about the the stuff comment section, yeah. how it acquired that? And that I can't flavor? exactly remember now when stuff um, launched into comments, but it's certainly quite uh, quite a few years ago now. I think this, the comments were always um, moderated, um, but often in our early technology, they were moderated in a way that was um, out of context with the story they related to. It was a really difficult process for the moderators. You can imagine that job trying to Phenomenal. go through what rapidly became thousands of comments and trying to put them in context with what you know the subject might have been. It was just really old-fashioned um, technology. And even though there were always a you know a set of guidelines, a set of standards, and things, things you know got through that in the context of reading a story or watching it, you would never have published or just humans trying to go through it, get through a lot of work. And I think we um, Patrick Crudson, who's the editor of Stuff, um, uh, a couple of years ago um, introduced a, a sort of you know, he revisited what the stuff comments were and what we wanted them to be. And we were really definite that we still wanted comments on stuff that was an important part of the platform, um, but that we were going to have to find some way of making them more civil and therefore useful to people than they had been. Um, and he introduced a lot of, you know, I guess a higher standard of guidelines, different rules for how the newsroom worked, a different... Um, comment moderation system, which I think has been successful. Um, and we're still, you know, we get you know, well over 100,000 comments a month that we publish and probably almost half again that we don't publish. Wow. So the, the rejection yeah. rate is, is that high? Yeah. And there are always people trying to get around the rules and, um, you know, uh, try and sneak in comments that are code for some sort of white supremacist um, meeting going to be held somewhere or some other kind of, um, say, you know, racist term that we're not familiar with or it's not that obvious that it doesn't get picked up. Um, so the moderator is extremely vigilant. Do you ever kind of consider, given the, the, the fact that this is not, this is a moving target, do, 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 does the sort of cost benefit of, both the engagement and the, the sort of extra revenue you might derive from it. Do, do you ever get close to doing what the likes of us and RNZ and so on have done in turning them off? No, we've never contemplated that. Um, I think we've always felt they were really important to staff um, in an important forum and kind of connected them with the idea. You know, we view ourselves not just as a, a, a new site but as a, a Kiwi platform. Mm. Where there's news, where people can share things, where there's um, you know other publishers and um, other content providers can place their own content, and where Kiwis themselves can have stories published, and we think comments are an important element of that. But they are, you know, they're an ongoing battle to deal with successfully, and I've certainly done my time in moderating those comments, and I'm glad that's not part of my job now. <laughs> <laughs> so. You took the job. When did you first become CEO? Um, it was oh, about two and a half years ago now, yeah. Describe the company as you found it and what drew you to the role and what, what you sort of felt like were the, the first orders of business in terms of changes that you wanted to, to make to leave your mark on, on the business. So when, um, when I came into the role, it was the year where uh, – the Commerce Commission and the courts had finally put to bed the fact that 
you know, the attempted merger between NZME and staff after what was probably about two years between of going through processes, going through appeals. Um, I'd been part of the executive team under Simon Tong during that time, um, who was a fantastic um, CEO and boss and had given me a lot of opportunities in development. Um, and he sort of left towards the end of that Commerce Commission period. And then I think, you know, what what ended up as a result of that was a company that had, you know, effectively been up for sale for a protracted period where, you know, staff were really unsure about where things were headed, were we going into something one way, were we going to be on our own, what would happen if the merger didn't happen. And... Um, and it had become, you know, difficult to sort of recruit people and to sort of convince customers that, you know, we were a, a long-term short bet to sort of do business with or come and work for. And so when I came into the job, I think the thing I really wanted to do was to try and give our um, staff, firstly, a really good place to work, even if we couldn't control a lot of the uncertainty out there around our industry in general, but around, you know, the ownership of our company, um, and to try and focus on, you know, the values that were at the heart of a news media business, which were ultimately about producing journalism that has a positive effect on the communities it serves. Um, so we, you know, connected, tried to connect back strongly into the purpose and how every role in our company um, played a part in that. So if you are a salesperson, your work and your success at it is funding the journalism that goes on to keep our society healthy and to tell stories and to champion those who don't have much of a voice otherwise. Um, and then, you know, we, we focused on, you know, all of these jobs, um, these, these type of leadership jobs have a, a finite period. You know, they're not lifetime jobs. So I really thought about what was the legacy I would want to leave for the business, but also the things that the business could achieve within the you know context of New Zealand communities, and um, yeah, we just put our heads down and try to focus on that. Raising capital or taking your business to the world, Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. I mean, as a, an outside observer and, and a consumer of stuff as a, as a product, I feel like, you know, regardless of... Um, whether it was fairly earned that reputation for a particular kind of style and set of values that that existed before you took over, that over the last two and a half years, it it does feel different in terms of the journalists at, at Champions, the the style, the the tone, the the emphasis on 
you know, uh, climate change stories. I mean, that's a, that's a section for you now. Um, and they, for example, the thing that I, there was almost like a symbolic power to me in a way when uh, Al Nisbet, who, who had published a number of, I think problematic is too weak a word for it. Um, you know, they, they were racist cartoons to me. Um, you know, he, he left and in the, you know, in the sort of, Aftermath of that, you know, there were there was brilliant coverage of um, Titiriti, and there there it did feel like there was a a new emphasis um, on having a bit more sort of purpose and values, and in, in, in what had felt maybe more laissez-faire, I guess from a, you know it was, it was sort of it expressed. A, a, a sort of a view of New Zealand to its audience, whereas in the past it almost expressed the audience's view in a, in a way, or it felt kind of driven more by what what the audience wanted. Um, and there, you know, did, was that like how do you go about making a, a transformation like that? And you know, did you meet resistance from audience and and or, or from journalists, or you know, like it, it's it's such a huge ship to be turning around, or, or yeah, and I think you know. From the inside, it didn't necessarily feel like we are changing from this thing to that thing. It felt like an evolution in the life cycle of where we were. There was that, you know, if I look back at those, um, you know, they're not really necessarily the early days of stuff because stuff is 20 years old next mm-hmm. year. But that kind of period where actually it went from being a once a day, you know, upload for newspapers into something to be developed in its old own product. And I'm really proud of a lot of the things that we did then because we built something into a national brand that really um, created that digital breaking news, um, live news coverage in the New Zealand context that dragged um, uh, an old-fashioned organisation in and really reinvented how journalists worked around the country um, to produce news for their community. And I think a lot of the, um, you know, the rough edges were were part of stuff learning what that type of site should be, could be, you know, mm. it, you know, it was reflected elsewhere in all sorts of different um, publications around the world too. Um, there's there was a sense, um, which I think has passed in recent years, where news media companies weren't really sure what they should be in the digital era in the years when the Facebooks and YouTubes and everything were growing up and there was a how much are you like them versus how much do you try and stand strongly on your own foundations that you're always being built on. Um, and I think that evolution now has partly come from um, some of the internal transformation we've done to try and focus the editorial resources on um, coverage that is of national interest, not just a collection of regional and local newsrooms, which is still, a, you know, they're the bedrock of the whole company. But, you know, things like creating the national correspondence team to focus on specific issues like climate, like, you know, um, Maori affairs, you know, all sorts of things. Um, bringing in the stuff circuit investigative team and, um, you know, a lot of the sort of growth around um, video and some of those things have just been about this continuous change of trying to put ourselves into a situation where we can produce the best work for the most people. 
you know, and while all that was happening, the the backdrop was that you were for sale, and, yeah. and they were trying to uh, trying to merge. I mean, how how do you that that that's such a weight to know that you're you have a sort of a, a I guess to a certain extent a, a reluctant owner and you know you're you're talking about a lot of things which are about forward planning and and giving people a sense of having career paths and so on and yet you know it's really hard to convey that when when you you know there, there are stories coming out of your own newsroom talking about the uh, the uncertainty of it you know how how challenging has it been to to have that sort of always hanging hanging over you? I think it's definitely is a challenging thing for an organisation to deal with because it's too easy for uh, people to even subconsciously slip into a, a feeling of limbo where you're not making a decision one way or another, or you're making a decision based on something you think might happen, even if it never happens. Um, but but it's um, I think you know. What we've really tried to say is that all we can all we can control is the work we produce, and you know, and doing that to the highest possible standard. And if we do that well, we will be um, having an impact. We will be relevant to people, and there will be a place for that. Um, we can't control, and in some ways, it doesn't always even matter who your ultimate corporate owner is. Um, you know, we've been owned by Nine. We've been owned by Fairfax Media. Before that, it was INL. Um, and it does have an impact in one way, and the other way you just need to kind of put your heads down and do the work that you know our audiences and our advertisers um, want from us. Um, and I think we've, you know, one of the big challenges has been about recruitment, for example, because you know attracting good people in when you can't necessarily say what might happen in a few months with ownership is difficult. And I think we've we've managed to get to a stage where we can attract really good people because they're attracted into the purpose of what the work is for. And um, we've tried to do, you know, things internally in terms of work environment. Um, you know, we're a flexible working organisation. You don't have to be in the office. We, you know, we stepped out and tried to extend parental leave out beyond the government um, minimums and things. Um, all the things that were about trying to um, create a good workplace environment that would be attractive to people and, um, coming in, but also uh, a good place to work for people who are already there. Yeah, I mean the the, the big thing, obviously, that that impacted or, or created that sense of limbo was the the Commerce Commission decision. Um, yeah, one of a pair of decisions which which had a huge impact on media. Um, I was talking to uh, to someone yesterday who said that. They, when they spoke to the Commerce Commission at the time, um, they went down the list, of, you know, or they spoke to the the eight people who made the decision and said, you know, obviously we're we're impacted by social media. You, you'll you'll know you'll all be on Facebook, and of those eight, none were on yeah. Facebook. Do you firstly were, were you in favour of the the merger, and and do you feel like they understood the gravity of what was happening to? Uh, the, the the media and the digital media and how urgent this um, this need for consolidation was that it wasn't you know a, a new monopoly being 
kind of created for venal commercial reasons, this was felt existential, still does. Yeah, um, I was in favour of the merger then, and I was um, really frustrated by some of those elements of the process when it became clear that the Commerce Commission was going to set aside the impact of Facebook and Google um, uh, you know, not that they didn't view them as our competitors in the market, and they took a more traditional view of the market. And um, that was really frustrating because the biggest impact on our businesses have been that disruption to the business model caused by you know consumers shifting to social platforms and these global platforms having extreme, um, extremely good uh, data-driven advertising products that have. Uh, you know, undercut the business model. So you to me, you couldn't separate out the ability to fund journalists and keeping media going from the advertising that had always sustained that. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing that when I think back on that process, when I was the executive editor for the group that I found really frustrating was um, there didn't really seem to be a belief that the editorial teams could be independent from the commercial interests of the company, which is um, you know, where it came down to the plurality of voices and the journalists. You know, you'll know this, Duncan. Journalists are independently-minded people and never in my experience, ever as a journalist or having come through um, into the sort of more commercial side of the business, and certainly in our business, has there been an interference over what stories could or couldn't be told as a result of that? So um, I actually found that, you know, I was felt personally affronted to a level, as did the other editors, that there wasn't um, a belief in that kind of editorial independence and that that could um, still flourish and survive regardless of who owned the companies. Was it sort of galling then when Jane Patterson's story broke two weeks ago today that, uh, you know, this this is something we've all been kind of hearing murmurs of. And sometimes you don't know whether, right, like, whether it's just us kind of, the kind of our conjecture gets repeated and comes back to us through a different path kind of thing. But there has been a sense that government, which, which came into power saying we're going to you know, do something big with media, and then that fell apart under some fairly incompetent stewardship from the then minister. But that um, the that that they were there's a proposal which hasn't yet been confirmed, I should say, but certainly feels like um, it's got energy and and uh, about uh, a potential for a, a merger of RNZ and and TVNZ. The fact that you know that. I mean, that's a tacit acknowledgement that, you know, not even particularly tacit, that, that, that um, the Commerce Commission were wrong well, and that uh, consolidation I mean, is there, necessary. There, there was, you know, there's definitely some irony in that. And, um, you know, I've got, I've actually got no real problem with that government plan if that is what comes to fruition. Obviously, still a lot of detail underneath there that we haven't heard around the commerciality of it and any of the sort of newer, new plans there. But it is... It makes perfect sense to try and consolidate um, in structural ways and ways where you can share the cost of technology or backrooms or offices or all those things, which were a big part of the NZME stuff merger then, so that you can focus your resources on content and journalism and, you know, without um, wasting on duplication of platforms and 
all sorts of things. So if that's, you know, part of the rationale behind that, I, it is perfectly logical. And it's perfectly logical in the commercial media uh, world as well. And we've seen it happen all over the all over the world. Um, you know, there has to be some sort of rationalisation and consolidation um, where you can take down a lot of backroom costs and underlying structural costs so you can keep doing the work that you're there to do. Do Where do you, if absent some form of intervention or consolidation, like if, and I realise it's probably impossible to talk about uh, you know, the, the report that came earlier this week um, from, from Tracy and Luke about, uh, you know, Start, yeah. start Great example of editorial independence. Yeah, right there. I can't imagine that, that you or, or Michael Fox <laughs> were particularly thrilled with that coming out. Um, but but uh, but absent that, how do you? Well, you know, it almost feels like there's going to be a consolidation by stealth of just a steady attrition. Like, you know, is. You know, how, do, how do you see the, the landscape in, in a few years' time if there isn't some, some ability to kind of get, get control mm. of this? Because um, the trend lines aren't great. You know, TVNZ, I, you know, a lot of this data is kind of haphazard and hard to get hold of, but they seem to have gone backwards in terms of revenue by, you know, over $100 million mm. in the past 20 years. And that, you know, you look at someone like MediaWorks, so at one stage had $700 million worth of debt. The idea that a media company in New Zealand could be allowed to have $700 yeah, million of debt, it's incredible. Just, it tells a story about, whereas right now you can buy NZME for $80 bucks. It's just, and I don't think that that's particularly widely un- understood. You know, wh- wh- how do you see this ending without some kind of um, cha- you know, structural yeah. or, or intervention kind uh, of look, change? I think, I think there will be structural change, and... I don't know exactly what that will be. Obviously, what's happening in the public media side is one thing. Um, I think, uh, you know, ultimately we're a company, a country of five million people. You know, we have ourselves in our own company, 49 newspapers, as well as Stuff, as well as Neighbourly, and then NZME have their own set and MediaWorks, etc. There's five million people here to sustain that um, either through subscriptions or advertising, and with so much of that advertising revenue flowing into social platforms, it makes it you know the economics are really difficult. Um, I don't you know I do wish I had a crystal ball to see how it would all play out. I mean I know um, there are a lot of good things and green shoots happening, and I and I overall I feel optimistic and positive, but I still feel there's a difficult period to get through in the next next few years where there's sort of uh, you know different business models being trialed where some of the seeds that have been planted around new revenue um, streams might hopefully be proven or perhaps not um, but you know I was, I was really um, sad to hear about TV3 going on the market and I hope there is a buyer in there somewhere but you know we haven't heard of anything there so far um, and what really strikes me is that the media industry, you know, whether it's MediaWorks, whether it's us, NZME, or whoever, have been really vocal about these challenges in the last few years. And it feels like any moves to help consolidation or any, you know, background are really late in the in the game. Um, that said, there's still a lot of things I think um, the government could do to help um, commercial media. You know, there's been the small 
um, pilots around the local democracy reporters, which would be great to see some of that um, increase. But there's, uh, you know, you look to places like Canada, for example, where they're, they've been doing a really a, a lot of really good um, intervention to help support the um, commercial media sector, including tax breaks, um, you know, uh, tax breaks for people with new subscriptions, tax breaks for news companies who have a number of journalists in certain towns and things like that. So there's a lot of things on that side. One of the things that I think would be a real um, benefit to the news media here is if the government um, decided to spend its own advertising money um, primarily on local news organisations rather than foreign platforms. That's something we've been talking a lot about and hoping to make some headway with. I mean, that, that's an interesting one. I, I understand that in the aftermath of Christchurch, you, know, you, you made a decision to, to cease all spending on Facebook. Uh, do you want to talk about what drove that and what power that gives you in terms of, of a sort of a, a moral clarity when you're lobbying government to, to, to kind of reconsider how it you know, uh, interacts with, with those companies. Yeah. There was a couple of things that we did straight after Christchurch, which we had been talking about for, or kicking around, I guess, for months beforehand. One of them was um, advertising of guns in our papers, which had already been under discussion because it's something our readers actually didn't really like. And, you know, we, we'd already um, had discussions about stopping that. And we did do that after the, the Christchurch shootings. Um, and the other was our own um, relationship with Facebook in particular. And um, and it had initially been born out of some of the things that were coming um, coming through overseas in terms of uh, Facebook's involvement in, um, you know, the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal, the um, ability for its data to be misused in ways that could undermine elections or, um, you know, have have really negative outcomes for democracies. And after the mosque shootings, when obviously a factor of that had been the live streaming of the video um, on Facebook and the sort of, you know, really quite unapologetic approach of Facebook after that, we really decided to draw a line in the sand and say Facebook and its values and what it stands for are, are diametrically opposed to us and why would we fund that with our own money? We can't do that and have any and be able to stand on any kind of um, you know ethical grounds of our own. And that wasn't this wasn't the reason why we've done it, but it has given us some moral clarity when we've gone to talk to government or others about, you know, the um, making, you know, thinking about the decisions of where to spend advertising money and what that's supporting. And it can either support a further um, growth or proliferation and um, misuse of data. And, you know, even we've we've seen recently Facebook's, um, you know, declaration, it doesn't really care if people lie in political ads next year. It's not going to do anything to stop that. Um, you know, ultimately, all the money that people spend on there is funding and enabling that, and we hope to make more of a, a stand on 
spend that money back with us because we are doing the kind of work that's contributing to a healthy community, as well as having the scale and reach and all the things that um, Facebook can give you in this market to reach your customers. Do you feel like the government hears you on that? Because it strikes me as there's there's a strange tension that is in some ways inherent to the relationship between politics and media, but also particularly with this government. But on the one hand, you know, I think Labour certainly has has had, you know, whether you, can, whether you agree with the policy or not, it seems to have, it seems to outwardly desire a strong and plural media. And yet you also have a, a coalition partner, a deputy prime minister who regularly aggressively attacks journalists. I mean, over the past couple of weeks, both RNZ and now staff have broken extraordinary stories about New Zealand First at a time when they're making, you know, that the, the, you know, the, the government are making decisions about the future of, of media. And, you know, the, the good riddance comment that's, that Peter's made when, you know, Tatova O'Brien, when, when mm. the news broke about three being for sale, felt emblematic of the attitude toward media of, of that party, that they, you know, don't perceive it as, as a public good. They view any reporting on on its actions as, you know, uh, not well-sourced or motivated. And, you know, it, that sometimes you despair of that 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 tension um, where where you've got on the one hand an existential crisis, on the other a, a, a core part of government that is essentially opposed to, to your, you practising your, your craft. Yeah, there is definitely a tension in that. And I think for the most part, um, governments have been able to, you know, no politician um, really loves the media um, when it's not, you know, writing the nice things. Um, but at the same time, I think there is a generally an ability to divorce any p- personal political interest and look at actually the fourth estate. The health of the fourth estate is really important to this country. But, you know, that is, as you just pointed out, not a universal view. And there is, um, you know, there has been some discussion internally about some of that tension there. You know, that our, our team did great work this week with the New Zealand Foundation and, you know, the um, predictable response from the New Zealand First leader and Deputy Prime Minister was, you know, fake news, fake stuff news, I'll deal with the fake news later. And, um, I mean, we've all heard that cry before from someone else who has probably actively sought to undermine trust in the media, and we can see some parallels there. How corrosive do you think that is when you have someone, you know, who's our Deputy Prime Minister, one of our, you know, I'm sure he is our longest-serving parliamentarian, in some ways, and I iconic New Zealander, whether well-deserved or not, uh, making those kind of statements about your own organisation and about what I think is, you know, some of the best and most important work we've we've seen all year. Yeah, I I agree on that point. I think there is, um, you know, it is corrosive to a level, but I think in that context um, it plays to a particular group of people who follow... um, that party anyway. I don't necessarily think it's something that's a broad, you know, a widespread impact. But in general, the kind of move over the last couple of years that's come out of, um, you know, Donald Trump and the states to um, just 
you know, invent this kind of term of fake news and direct it incessantly at legitimate news reporting has been really corrosive in terms of trust in media, um, especially when, you know, the, by and large, the news media is not the ones who spread fake information, disinformation, fake news. It's the opposite. They're trying to battle against this tide. That's been kind of born out um, more on the social platforms where anyone can say anything and direct it at anybody. Um, so in general, I'm more wor- I'm worried more about the overall erosion of trust in media. When at, actually at a time, it's more important than ever that people realise they can trust their local news organisation to give them the facts and the truth and allow them to make up their own mind about what they think of that. One of the many things that I bore people with um, in, in conversation is this carve out uh, that the social platforms have that, that exist for them and don't exist for media organisations um, around their lack of responsibility for what, what's published on them, um, you know, the, the sort of so-called safe harbour uh, provisions, which, which mean that they can effectively act as publishers but not have any responsibility for what's published there, which is why they could live stream a, a, a massacre and sort of essentially suffer no consequences. And, and it's kind of like the original sin and opportunity that created a lot of the internet, but particularly the, the social web. Uh, do, you, do you ever kind of think about that or, or have a view about the level of, you know, you talk about your comment moderators. That's very expensive and tricky. And so at some stage, you know, if you're, you know, if you're dealing with white, white supremacy and racism and so on, that's a traumatizing exercise mm-hmm. uh, that the onerousness of, and just the general responsibility that you that you have as an employer and a publisher, the, the way that we feel it versus the way that it, it is just sort of you know, it's not even in their makeup, and they strongly resist any attempt to in, insert a, a kind of a level of responsibility or human interaction at uh, particularly Facebook. You know, do, do you think that that is a, you know, that there there is a case for reform or regulation? Oh, absolutely. That? You know, I think on many levels there is a case for reform and regulation, um, starting with um, tax for one at one level, but also I just do not think. Um, those platforms should be able to, you know, just throw up their hands and cry, we're not a publisher. We regret this, but we're not doing anything about it um, and get away with it when they have, um, uh, you know, the ability to reach and influence so many people. Um, and in this day and age, uh, a social media can be somebody's primary way of consuming news or what they think is news. And... Um, I absolutely think that they should be regulated in that way, in the same way as news media. Do you do you think that there is any prospect of that happening? I don't see it happening in the near future. I think these things move extremely slowly, and I also think um, you know you can see in the European Union and some of the European countries, there's been real moves to try and um, regulate. Um, the platforms in some in various ways, but in general, I think there's also a bit of uh, um, a reluctance or a, a, of governments to tackle these giants, possibly because they don't quite understand that world so well themselves, and they there's a bit of a 
you know, once you plunge into the world of algorithms and data and global platforms, it requires quite a sophisticated knowledge of how they work and where the potential pitfalls and um, opportunities for exploitation are. We're, we're sort of running out, out of time here to an extent, but I, I guess I want to um, end on just just looking at the, the again at the media work situation. Um, you know, I think you're right that the media has been talking about this for some time, and there've been you know the closures of community newspapers, and you know I think there was a a, a report recently that talked about the, the number of journalists in New Zealand halving from, which in fact is less than half the number it was sort of 20 years ago. But there's something almost symbolic about the power of three and with it news hub. That, that newsroom, which is one of the, the three great privately owned newsrooms in the country and one of, if not the, the best gallery team over the past 20 years, certainly in terms of its aggression and its style uh you know what do you do do you think that the public and the government knows the stakes now and, and what do you think if, if if three were to go what what do you think we would lose uh, um you know i really i am i have so much admiration for that newsroom and the team there and the work that they've done over the years i always have done and they've you know they've really scrapped and delivered amazing stories over the years in straightened circumstances. They've never been an organisation that's been awash in cash, but they've been able to deliver um, incredible programmes and, and news. Um, and I think it will be, you know, in, in some ways, you know, the, the troubles of the media industry are occupying a lot more headlines. But in other ways, I think perhaps people won't really realise the seriousness of that until some of these organisations have gone um, you know, we've been looking a lot in our own organisation recently about what is the true impact of journalism, not just ours, but you know, journalism and its role in society, and how can we convey that message that you know, if it wasn't there, some really important things would drop away or be at risk. And um, you know, we've to you know, even this week, our own circuit story, stuff circuit story about the Afghan. Um, children killed by the leftover ordinance New Zealand uh, by New Zealand uh, deployment over there um, had a very rapid response from our Prime Minister and the Defence Force and that wouldn't have happened if that work hadn't been done um, you know here I think about it as sometimes even as being even more important on a really local level when you've got journalists covering local authorities that wield enormous budgets and enormous influence over people's day-to-day -day lives. And when that kind of just being present and holding those authorities to account for their decisions and, and the knowledge that there's a journalist present and watching can have a real influence on the outcomes and decision-making. Um, in the States, we've seen... Um, there's a lot of studies now on what has happened when news organisations have closed up shop in towns um, and there's just been an almost immediate rise in corruption, a drop off of civic engagement, you know, nepotism and in public institutions, all that sort of stuff. And we absolutely don't want that to happen here. So to prevent that happening, we've got to be able to deal with all these really thorny issues around um, how do you... Uh, create the kind of environment where diverse 
news media can flourish and survive. Are you confident? I, I, you know, I am. Sometimes I think we have these conversations and they, they kind of tend to sound quite doom filled. <laughs> but actually, I am confident in a lot of ways. And in one way, I think, you know, another thing that kind of gets thrown out there a lot is that journalism these days is far more shallow and nowhere near as good as it used to be. Well, you know, when I started my job as a reporter, you know, 20 odd years ago, I can tell you that the work that's been produced by the young journalists now, you know, including our own Henry Cook and, you know, Matt Shand and all sorts of Florence Kerr, is far superior to the best of the work that was being produced then. I think journalism is it's harder to fund. There are fewer journalists, but the quality of the journalism itself has just gone through the roof in a lot of ways. And um, yes, there are a lot fewer journalists, and a, no doubt some of that is because of the you know the drop-off in revenue for organisations. But also some of it's come about because of technological changes and because of changing consumer habits. Um, you know, not everybody wants to read a newspaper all the time now. They've moved into different formats and we have to adapt to that too. There's no point wringing our hands about that. Um, how many of, of of us, you know, now get a daily newspaper? I probably consume more news than I ever did. And we have more consumers than we ever did. We're just still figuring out the, the best ways to sustain that. But, I, you know, I look overseas now and you can see the path's been forged by um, some of the companies have gone down subscription models or doing different things that are really starting to get bedded in there. And that's what I mean. I feel like there's still a couple more years of challenge and hard graft and some difficult times. And, you know, but ultimately I'm optimistic about the outcome there. Would just just one final question. The, the big thing that, and you, you sort of touched on it at the start, that, that idea that... Um, you know, would things have been different had had you gone towards a subscription or, or a reader revenue uh, approach from the start? Like, is that something that remains a consideration for stuff? Because you have this enormous audience, you have these, as you say, extraordinary young and old journalists. But I mean, the, the stuff's young slate is is just insane. Um, it, you know, it does feel like some a, a public good that people would pay for. Is does that and yet it is, you know, you have fibre and you have an electricity company, but you don't have a facility for people to pay for that journalism online. Is, is that likely to change? It's, it has always been something we've kept on the radar and um, have followed with interest what others have done. And I think it's, you know, it's definitely something we consider and are considering, but I can't tell you what that might shake down into because we're not at that point yet. There's a lot of different models um, out there from, you know, hard paywalls to donations to all sorts of things. And I think you know, ultimately we do believe that the reader sees value in the work we produce and would be prepared to pay for that. What that looks like for us, I don't know yet. Um, we embarked on our ventures, Stuff Fiverr, the ISP, which, just a shout out to that team for winning the overall best broadband provider in the country Amazing. the um, other week they really cleaned up at the awards including the people's choice award um, and our little energy company they were about you know how do we um, effectively leverage off the scale of our audience 
by building businesses where people will pay us every week or every month. So a subscription business is just not subscription for content. But now we def- we are definitely looking at what you know that future holds. Um, but probably fair to say we're quite early on in that in that path. And good luck to those who have embarked on that already, because I think in general there's a feeling, well certainly certainly my feeling there's a, a, a an underlying support among the different media organisations for each other's attempts at new business models, because ultimately we all want it to work out, and that we can all you know find some stable way through. All right. Hey, thank you so much, Sinead, uh, for, for being my guest on this first episode of Deep Background. Uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll have you back. Kia ora e te iwi. Te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.